do you trust chat gpt is the question that i keep getting asked and my answer is simple we have to be transparent about where you can trust it and where you cannot if you know the answer already and you're able to vet what you're getting out of chat gpt then it's useful but if you don't know the answer then you probably have to go through a series of steps to check if you can trust it or not Welcome to The Power of Digital Policy, a show that helps digital marketers, online communications directors, and others throughout the organization balance out risks and opportunities created by using digital channels. Here's your host, Christina Podner. Today's guest is Karthik Sururajan, who leads ZS's pharma commercial AI practice. He focuses primarily on pharmaceutical and biotech industry, helping companies develop, evolve, and implement AI-driven product marketing strategies, tactics, and execution. His expertise areas include using AI and ML to enable sharper opportunity identification and targeting, leveraging primary MR and other non-traditional data sources in AI and ML to enable more precise end-to-one personalization, launch AI, voice of patient AI, and end-to-end patient support needs and intervention prediction using AI and ML. Welcome, Karthik, to the Power Digital Policy Podcast. I'm so excited to have you here today and ready to talk about all things AI, pharma, biotech, and just geekiness. Thank you. Thank you, Christina. I'm happy to be here and excited to talk about my favorite topics. Well, look, before we dive in, I'm always very curious about people's backgrounds, because I don't think it's really accidental that you landed where you landed. So first of all, what inspires you to become a data scientist? Because it's such a highly niche area, and you're not just a data scientist. You're a data scientist in the pharmaceutical and biotech industry. Yeah. So (laughs) um, as a kid growing up in India, I had a variety of choices as to what I had to become, which is to say that I could either be an engineer or a doctor. So What happened? I ended up studying math and biology so that I could then figure out what I wanted to be. Within biology, there was a lot of genetics and I loved the combinations of the patterns of X's and Y's that came together to bring this to life, right? So my first real introduction to AI was when I was doing my undergrad in India, where we were applying genetic algorithms and neural networks for manufacturing problems, say production planning type of problems. And I had a lot of fun because it was about biology. I was, there was crossing of genes, there was mutating of genes, there is generating new genes, and that was solving a math problem. There you go, that's AI to me. Then I went to Purdue for my PhD, and there I continued my AI journey to apply AI for supply chain for automotive and high-tech. And there, I got introduced to AI in a different way, where one of my professors was working on a research problem of how do I cut out cancer tumors in the most efficient way and in a way where it doesn't reoccur. That was exciting. Then I went to IBM Research, where I was again applying AI and algorithms for high-tech and medical drug supplies types of issues. But then I was introduced to the genealogy project where they were collecting the data that can then be used to predict a variety of different things for healthcare. That basically said, you know what, I think I really want to be in healthcare. 
And of course, I want to be doing something in AI. So I joined ZS. And over the last 10 plus years at ZS, I've been learning biopharma, healthcare in a little bit more deeper fashion. And over the last five, six years, trying to take a little bit of a AI angle to it. And how do you apply AI and digital in biopharma? That has been my focus. And the idea is to transform how pharma companies engage physicians and patients from the point of view of creating better patient outcomes. One of the things that I really appreciate that you just talked about is data. And you talked about it in terms of insights, but you kept saying data a number of times. And I think there's still this misconception when people say AI, they talk about it almost as if it's magic. There's like this notion of it's magic. It's something that happens in a black box. It can't be seen or understood. Is that really the case? Or are we really talking about data and understanding data usage? And then maybe there is some magic, right? Let's talk about what AI is. And this is going to be a simplistic explanation, but that's kind of how I think about it, right? The traditional way of doing analysis is that you take data, you apply logic, and you get some output. AI is basically, I have data, I have the output for some situations, now I have to figure out the logic or the underlying pattern, which I can use to explain things, which I can use to predict stuff, or I can use to create new, right? So that's AI. So is there magic? Yes, but the magic is also in a way, it should be explainable. And the reason I'm calling, talking about data a lot is the AI fad has been there for a few different cycles. So AI has had multiple cycles where there's a lot of thing we talk about AI and then it disappears. Now, of course, with data and technology, it's coming back. But if I really look at what is the best AI, the best AI has two factors. It is data-centric, where it's less about A, I'll just apply an algorithm, but more about how do you bring the data pieces together in the right way to solve a specific business problem. I'll give you an example. Pharma companies have data from patient claims and other sources. There is also market research that is conducted by pharma companies with the customers. Those are two data sets. Typically, you might say, well, I need AI. I need to use large data, so let me just use claims. But claims is not perfect. Market research is small and noisy. How do I bring the two of them together to create an insight for all the customers in the universe? That's an exciting problem where you're engineering the data and putting it together the right way to solve a specific business problem, which could be which position is going to write the product or what they think about your product. The second part of it is, in addition to data being data set, I mean AI being data centric. You also have to have AI that is invisible. The best AI is invisible. Part of the thing is, there is the statement that I've heard, which is, it should be like Tylenol. Nobody knows what's in Tylenol, but people trust it anyway. So we have to get to a point where the trust part of AI comes in, but AI is invisible. What is visible is what you get out of it. So yes, there is some magic, but the magic is constructed, right? Like, like anything, the magician knows what is going in. And how you do it is what creates better outcomes from AI. I love that analogy. I think I'm going to start talking about Tylenol more. 
<laughs> yeah, I stole it from somebody. So happy to share. <laughs> there you go. You've heard it here first. Uh, what are the key challenges you're seeing around sort of the data aspects in biopharma today that AI can help us solve? The data that is available for all the customers for biopharma is broad but limited in its own way. For example, patient claims is a very important source of data for biopharma. Patients, they go to a doctor, the doctor files a claim, and that claim is recorded, and so you can track patient journeys along their continuum, right? But that data has gaps because it is collected at different places at different level, levels of granularity. So sometimes I might not know what stage of cancer a patient has just by looking at the data because it's just not captured. So can I use AI to actually bridge those gaps? Sometimes the data is available in a different data set. So I was talking about market research earlier. You could talk about EMR data as well, where the data is available. Can I learn from that and then use that to bridge the gap in a different data set? That's also AI, transfer learning, right? So there are different ways in which AI can help in the biopharma world. And it is actually happening quite a bit because pharma, AI in pharma, they've realized that it's not just about the ML models. It's all about the business problem and how you use the data to solve the business problem. So if we're talking about data gaps, because we don't necessarily have 360 view of patients and their claims, and that would be something that's helpful. Is there a place for synthetic data there? Or is that even something worth thinking about? Yes. So absolutely. So I'll, I'll give you a classic example of synthetic data, right? This is sort of where, in some ways, it started. In the old world, there was this concept of systems dynamics and agent-based simulation, where what you were trying to do was, and in manufacturing, if you had to detect failures and if you wanted to understand if certain things are working, you run a simulation. And the simulation is synthetic data because I'm trying to create widgets and I pass the widgets along a specific set of activities and then I'm mimicking what happens in reality. How is that applicable to pharma and healthcare? If there is an application where, let's say I'm doing contracting and rebating with payers, there are, it's game theory, right? There are different reactions that can happen. There are different strategies that you can take. Can I simulate that through the use of synthetic data, digital twins, and so on? So that's something that's basically applied quite a bit, right? It can also be applied at the patient level where I'm mimicking the patient journey to understand where are the gaps in the journey, but I may not have all the data. So then can I use what data I have to create, call it statistical distributions, sample from that, and then run my synthetic patients through their journeys, understand where the gaps are, and then apply that to reality because the real data is not collected the right way. When we talk about synthetic data, what does that look like from a privacy and a regulatory perspective? And is it the case that we need actual data to create synthetic data? Yeah. So synthetic data is typically created with a sample of actual data. Right. Let me take a step back and talk about trust and data privacy in a different way. Right. So there is this aspect of consumers 
starting to get more involved in healthcare treatment decisions. So one part of that is, as a consumer, there are many situations where I might want to share my data because I get something out of it. For example, let's say I have diabetes and I'm using a diabetic pump and the medical manufacturer wants to track my data to ensure that if there's a pump failure or something happens, they're able to detect it properly. I might be more willing to share because it's important for me for my outcome. Now, let's take a different example. Let's say that you are searching on your favorite search platform. And let's say I'm able to predict that based on your search terms, you have pancreatic cancer. Should I tell you? Should I not tell you? If it's suicide help support, we find it imperative to tell the person that yes, call this helpline if you need support. What about other tricky situations like cancer or other things? How much do you tell? What about depression? So these are the cases where you have to be very careful about what you do versus what you do not do when it comes to data privacy, right? It's a very tricky topic in some ways because there is no one rule that fits all. But fundamentally, it comes down to two things in my mind. One is informing people what data you're collecting and how you're using it. The second piece of it is, do you have the right systems in place so that the data security is maintained? Who owns the responsibility around that? That like, what if you have a device that's implanted in you and it's using AI? Can I block updates to the device if I don't want them for whatever reason? Like, I just don't want updates anymore. I just don't want any kind of treatment for whatever ails me. Is that a choice that I have anymore? How far into those types of ownership decisions are we at this point? I think the ownership has to be with the consumer. I actually strongly believe that, right? So I need to have the choice. And the choice aspect goes across different things, right? So the same way I want the choice in what drug I take, I also want the choice in how my data is used. And those choices are very important for people to have trust. So the ownership should certainly lie with the consumers and how you make it easy for the consumers is also important when it comes to ownership. Because one of the things that I've heard is that healthcare providers talk about data and they have a lot of data. They just don't know how to use it. Because who do I inform? How do I use it? And that part is also onerous, right? So that's another problem to solve. So the ownership, of course, is clear. But how I use it, how, what do I do with all the data, that also needs to be thought about. And so how do we start to build trust in AI? What does that look like from a consumer perspective? I'll take chat GPT as an example, which is the rage today, right? Do you trust chat GPT is the question that I keep getting asked. And my answer is simple. We have to be transparent about where you can trust it and where you cannot. So one of the rules of thumbs I've heard is if you know the answer already, and you're able to vet what you're getting out of chat GPT, then it's useful. But if you don't know the answer, then you probably have to go through a series of steps to check if you can trust it or not. And even 
OpenAI CEO talks about this quite a bit, right? It's evolving, it's learning. So there's a lot of messaging that is being done to say that, hey, this is still not ready yet for prime time. But at the same time, it is already starting to have an impact in many cases where people are using it. For example, it can actually write code for you. And more often than not, that code is smarter and better than what you made manually. It becomes a co-pilot for you. So to build trust in AI, usual approach has to be, again, transparency in how it is built, whether it's the data or how the data is used or what output you get, but also talk about it in terms of how do you maybe think about it as a co-pilot first and then sort of doing other things later, right? Even if I think about how doctors are using AI. Doctors are using AI first as a co-pilot before basically other things happen. For example, the doctors get an alert saying that based on this imaging, this patient has a specific disease. They still have the opportunity to vet it and say, okay, do I believe in this or not before they pass the diagnosis. That said, over time, many of these diagnoses have become better I was reading the news about Mayo Clinic rolling out something where they are able to predict GI disorders faster. They are able to predict which pre-diabetic patients are at higher risk of developing the diabetes. All these are important things where they have tested it, the doctors have actually approved it, and now there is larger acceptance. So you have to go through those stages of trust. Trust involves explainability. Trust also involves other aspects that we have to bring together. So I'm personally trying to reconcile this really crazy kind of thing where I can't send my doctor a message, like an email. I have to actually still use the phone to schedule an appointment and I have to come into the office with the fact that my doctor might be using AI. And I'm thinking to myself, like, how do I, like, literally help me reconcile this? Like, where are we? You're bringing up a very important point, which is the proliferation of digital in healthcare. What we need is not digital health. What we need is digital connected health. So there has to be this aspect of there are all these different ways. I have to call the doctor. In some cases, I can do digital engagement. In some cases, I can do different things. How do we bring all these pieces together into a connected healthcare ecosystem? And how do we bring the different stakeholders together? Biopharma, the way they look at digital might be different from how providers look at digital, maybe different from how payers look at digital. But that collaboration and the closed loop aspect has to come into play for the patient to actually get the benefit out of this. Where I'm going with this is, in some cases, digital is helping quite a bit, whether I look at my trackers or alerts and so on. In other cases, what you're saying is true, which is that I have to call the doctor because we have not connected the different pieces of the ecosystem well enough yet through digital. And do you see different levels of connectivity depending on where you're geographically based? Is there more connectivity, for example, in the EU or China versus the US or in Israel or in Saudi Arabia versus Canada? Yeah. So ZS did a study recently and one of the things that came out is China has the highest adoption of digital. Let's think about why. <laughs> the population size, 
the fact that there are long wait times to actually get to a doctor, it was imperative for them to adopt digital to ensure that they're getting the right care at the right time. So you see that in China, where whether it's telemedicine or use of apps or other things, China is ahead in terms of adoption of digital. US is second on the list with other EU countries coming into play as well. So why does that happen? To me, for it to become digital and for the digital connected health to happen, in addition to the technology and the AI and other aspects coming into play, we also need to be, the problem has to become a little bit more acute in some ways. But people are like, yeah, I can actually do this better. Classic example is COVID. We didn't have access to doctor offices during COVID. So everybody was okay with digital and virtual doctor visits. Now, virtual doctor visits are starting to become a thing, even though it's going down after COVID. Many companies are starting to explore how do I use telemedicine, as an example, to connect with patients, right? Telemedicine has a few different flavors, right? It's not just your PCP that you're talking to. There's this aspect of digital front door where we're going back to our search term example. If somebody's searching for something or go to a web page, can I give them a number to call? And then that basically translates into, let me do the triaging first at one level before I take you to the right specialist. These kind of things are also happening where you're connecting different pieces of digital to get to the right outcome. So do you see technology, specifically AI and other digital capabilities, pushing the boundaries to the point where I, as an individual citizen, can get access to healthcare from anywhere in the world? Or are we still bound by geographies? Will I get to the point where I can get faster, better treatment from the EU, from China, or will I continue to be bound by what's available in the US? So in the near future, we are going to be bound by US and potentially local geography as well. Because two reasons. One is, of course, regulations. And there's also the aspect of different countries are in different stages when it comes to healthcare. So yes, you want to go there, but maybe they don't have the supply to serve the demand also has something to think about. I mean, the classic example is there are many people who come to the US for cancer treatment, right? So that is still possible, but not virtually. So that's the piece that we have to figure out a bit more and regulations and other things are in place that sort of is going to make it difficult in the near future unless they change. The second aspect of it in full honesty is this always bothers me is the aspect of the digital divide, right? Me as a person might have access to all the digital tools and so maybe I can do it, but what about the underrepresented, underserved population? How do we create health equity if we go towards this model? That is a very acute concern and we need to take a local approach to solving that. So it has to be a local approach so that it's not like the digital aspect is creating imbalance in the society in terms of how we provide healthcare as well. So Karthik, we always talk about opportunities and risks. That's what the power of digital policy is all about. What is the biggest risk you see right now for Biopharma when it comes to AI and big data? And what is the biggest risk and the biggest opportunity in your mind? The risk in my mind is always about privacy 
and how do we manage consent and privacy? That to me is something that we always have to think about. The biggest opportunity in my mind, I'll take a different tack at this one. When you think about AI and digital and healthcare, there's feels like it feels like there is a haves and have nots type of approach that is coming in. I'll explain. When it, we spoke about the digital divide, where do you have access to digital or not? And how do we ensure health equity? There's also the aspect of companies that are bigger and can provide more resources into it, maybe are getting much smarter, much faster, much more agile, much more efficient, and gaining a competitive edge. And the smaller companies are still not able to capitalize on it because they don't have the investment. So how do you bridge that? Now let's expand that aperture a little bit, right? Where do you, where can you actually create an opportunity? In my hometown in India, there is an app that has come out called ePARVAI. It basically means eyesight. So the idea is that somebody can come into your home and scan your eyes to see whether you need a cataract surgery. And that enables them to figure out who needs it, who doesn't need it, and they're sourcing, sending them to the right specialist. So when you think about developing in underdeveloped countries, are we focusing enough on AI and digital in those countries where some of these things can have a very, very big impact? China took the bull by the horn and they're doing it. Now, developing in underdeveloped countries, how do we do it there? How do we actually create better patient outcomes globally? I think to me, there is the have and have not divide that is happening there as well. It's an opportunity and a risk. Well, there you go. I feel personally challenged and I hope all of the listeners do as well, but really wonderful insights. Certainly a lot of activity going on in the biopharma space. Really appreciate you coming by today to give us your take on it and certainly lots and lots of insights here to think about. So Karthik, appreciate your time and looking forward to chatting with you more in the future. Thank you for joining The Power of Digital Policy. To sign up for our newsletter, get access to policy checklists, detailed information on policies, and other helpful resources, head over to thepowerofdigitalpolicy.com. If you get a moment, please leave a review on iTunes to help your digital colleagues find out about the podcast.